Well, Happy New Year, Scott. We're here in 2023. Happy New Year to you. I made it to 12.05 last night. Is that right? That, that was all I could twirl in my body to do for Man, New Year's Eve. I went home and I, I couldn't even tell you what time it was. It was early <laughs> and pre-midnight. Yeah, yeah. Just now, before we cut on the mics, you were, we were talking about hockey. So in this new year, you know, I'm going to do, so I guess I'm going to do, you know, according to Dell, something new and go to a hockey match. Mm-hmm. I have my own sorts of aversions. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a second. But your primary aversion was what? Not who would be there or who might be there, but the cost, right? Ticket price. Ticket prices for hockey games are a thing. They're up there. And I don't know what the scalper situation is. You could probably get one from a scalper. <laughs> well, you know who you don't need to scalp tickets from is Schuber Club. Since 1882, Schuber Club has been creating inspiring musical experiences in the Twin Cities. They have some free courtroom concerts that I'm going to talk about uh, in, a, in a little bit here, but I also want to send uh, thanks to Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. More on Salastina here in a bit as well, but back to this issue of hockey. I was also a little bit surprised to see the uh, cost of these tickets, what, what what they look like. I didn't know, you know, hockey hockey players got down like that, or mm-hmm. at least hockey fans. Um, but I'm going to try something different, and it is what it is. Let's translate that into the concert hall that's or the opera house. That's the first place my mind went when you were uh, talking about the, the, the cost of these tickets. If fighting... That's allowed. <laughs> like, actually, they're allowed to fight, <laughs> you know. Encouraged. <laughs> uh, uh, crowds that are screaming. I mean, all the stimuli are there. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the what, what did you say that you needed to see? All the, the spectacle. The, the spectacle is there. And you are still not paying 90-something dollars to go see that spectacle. So that means, you know, a spectacle on a stage just don't have a chance, huh? <laughs> <laughs> All I'm saying is that, you know, we're around the holidays and plus the way everything is going up. You know, my bills have doubled in some instances for things that I pay for. Yeah. And so I'm, oh, more, yeah. I'm far more uh, economical. I don't want to say cheap. Because I've been called cheap. Okay. But I'm economical. <laughs> economical. Yes. Somebody who's doing a lot of thinking uh, about economics these days is our great friend, uh, member of the Trilco family, Maria Issa, Maria Issa Perez Hedges. Mm. Not only uh, will she be sworn in uh, officially into the Minnesota uh, House of Representatives by the time this comes out on Wednesday, uh, her new album is going to come out as well. It's called Capitolio. So it's, you know, the, the political the uh the activists and all of that stuff you know all balled up into what uh, maria does so well and the opening track features someone uh, we know a guy by the name of bernie she actually included in on this album a little conversation that they had and i wanted to share it with the people here to encourage you to go check out this album but this is maria Issa and bernie sanders in conversation she didn't go through usual shit you know she used social media in a very yeah part. You should, you know, people will respond to you a lot more than these 90-year-old guys mm-hmm. sitting in the house there for 50 years. That's right. Don't be afraid. Oh, no. Okay. We're not, we're wrapping our way to the house. There you go. <laughs> in the house. And we're going to keep it and in like the house. A, You know, and if they, and if somebody says something to you, young yeah. lady, this is not the decorum of the Minnesota state. Yeah. Like, they can tell them to go fuck themselves. Exactly. <laughs> you got it? Can I give you a hug, man? Yeah, right. I'm going to tell you. 
that's exactly what we've been talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sounds on brand for Bernie Sanders, yeah, right? And you and Dell were really involved in her campaign, weren't you? Dell especially. You know, yeah. he he's the one that definitely gets the shout out. But I I think it's so incredible <laughs> not only to have Bernie Sanders on your album and of course, you know, through that an endorsement or whatever, but Bernie Sanders telling these traditionalists to go fuck themselves. He said that. I, I didn't say that. Bernie Sanders <laughs> said that. Seems on brand for him, right? That seems like it the does. Bernie Sanders we all learn through TV or yep. whatever. Yep. Bad hair and everything. <laughs> <laughs> but one point that you were making was that it's not only the Bernie Sanders that we know on TV or, or th- as a talking head, but over the generations. If we just do the research, look at the photos, he's right. been doing the work. Bernie Sanders has been preaching that gospel since uh, the civil rights era. You can see him in the 60s getting arrested in rough fashion mm-hmm. along with other protesters. Uh, so if you want to talk about a track record, Bernie Sanders certainly has one. Yeah. But now let's get to it. What were they talking about? You know, rapping in the state capitol. Mm-hmm. Okay, we can we can rap in the state capitol, but we can't rap in the opera house, huh? Or the concert hall or the classical radio station. We we can we, we you know, we we can't do that. We are going to decolonize the government itself before we decolonize so-called classical music. Mm, sounds that way. That's 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 what we just need to accept. That's what it is. Just just try to go limp. <laughs> Bernie's uh Bernie's advice was to do what? When people push back on the idea of refreshing what's going on in there, you know, he said to do what? They could go screw themselves. Okay, okay, you're being PG today. That's fine. What did you we say? What we, we said can't. no swears in the first ten minutes. I'm <laughs> trying know, to adhere. True. Okay, we can't say that to our audiences, though, right? We can't say that to the traditional um, opera house audiences, uh, concert hall audiences, public radio, classical radio audiences. That would be seen as, you know, uh, biting the hand that feeds you, I suppose, or or just be a disrespectful or whatever. We've we've built so much decorum around classical music yeah. that the advice that our own Bernie Sanders would likely give can apply. Yeah, you know, it's so strange how that has been cultivated and been there for my entire career that you're always, we are always instructed to demure mm-hmm. if we're confronted, you know? Whereas um, I think that with a younger generation coming into this music and this medium, mm-hmm. I think that's going to change. So there's going to be more of that. I'll, I think the hot can, takes are going to go somewhere else. Um, man. And Babatunde, you know, he's he's starting in the mix yep. of, you know, uh, if, go and listen to last week's opus. Um, so I think that the hot take, I think the uh, strong opinion and uh, an ability to defend it in this medium is going to be more and more prevalent. Mm. I think uh, about what you said a few weeks back a lot regarding needing that uh, sort of controversy, needing that spice, needing that beef mm-hmm. in, in the art form. I agree because we all know uh, that people like the mess. Exactly. And by people, I mean me, you know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but there has to be a um, a more peaceful way. I don't mean to miss America this thing, but... As fun as it is to just think about taking the traditional audiences and saying, well, we don't care. Get out of here. Do what you want to do. A part of it for me is also wanting them to experience what I experience and feel when I, you know, hear a a, com- a composer uh, who I haven't heard before or, you know, the new music experience, feeling seen on stage, whatever, you know, story I, I want to tell. I want them to experience that, too. Are we uh, forcing 
you know, they talk about you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Are we just going to uh, hold the Jam their ho- head ho- horse's, the- horse's head <laughs> under the water? You know, <laughs> equity, damn it. You know, or, you know, is Bernie Sanders on to something as we're as we're exploring this idea of a spicier uh, classical music ecosystem? You know, the, the the stuff that we're talking about. Do we need to be ready to consider, you know, what it will look like to do what Bernie waterboarding Sanders said? somebody into no, uh, to do what new- Bernie Sanders said, you know, <laughs> to say, just fuck him, whatever, whatever, who cares? There's probably a lot of people that enjoy the canon who are flip it around and they, they're going to say, do we just have to jam their head down in, into this Haydn? And, and make them see the genius. But the thing is, we've been there. Damn. we I, I have a music degree where this mm-hmm. is all we fucking talk about. Right. And then you they know, say- all the, the, oh, our, our heads have already been under the water. <laughs> right. And so, and then they come back and they say, well, why would I re- waste time listening to this new piece that I might not like when the Hofner Symphony is right here? <sighs> what do you say to those people? I say that the Hofner Symphony has been there for a long time. That's right. Yes, it is right there. And it's been there for 150 damn years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is it okay to move that to the side? I just think in general, um, maybe we will have to get down to doing what Bernie Sanders said. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe that's just what, what it is. But I think if we want to be more uh, inclusive or hold hands or whatever, woo, woo, kumbaya, it's going to require just uh, a spirit of accepting uh, something new, you know, having an exploratory ear, trying something different. I'm going to go to a hockey game and, you know, what happens there is what happens there. I hope I don't have a story for y'all oh, next God. week, okay? Yeah, but no. but, if, but that that is something that, you know, if through my consistency, I'm like, okay, if I want people to feel that way of music, let me do that in, in the broader world. We're seeing it happen in politics and it's being uh, uh, encouraged by Bernie Sanders himself, you know, by the hand of uh, Maria Issa. Is it, is, it's not too much to ask our audience, our communities, our ecosystem to wake up and do a bit of the same. Just so that I'm understood, I'm not at all saying, I'm not advocating for keeping all the Haydn and the Hofner Symphony. I'm I hear not. You. No, I hear you. But <laughs> You better not be. No, because <laughs> the thing is, is that I'm getting my head dunked in two different directions. Sure. I have to deal with the people who say, whoa, 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 this change is coming too quick. And then I have to deal with the people who are going like, come on, pick up the pace. And then there I am on the on the tightrope in the middle. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. and. The tightrope in the middle is, you know, a, a part of what some people have to do, yep. you know, um, yep. just just like some people have uh, been on a different sort of tightrope for much longer professionally or, you know, having these orchestra jobs for 30 years. And anyway, yeah. we're all trying. We're all making sacrifices. We're all working hard. Shout out to Maria Issa. Go check out Capitolio. I'll have a link uh, in the description of this. Welcome, everyone, to the new year and a new opus of Triloquy. Let's get started. <laughs> I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 100. 
81. Thanks so much for tuning in. To returning listeners, thank you so much for continuing to support this project. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out Triloquy, Triloquy is a podcast that takes the concept of classical music and applies it to a, a broader perspective of the phrase. We take stories, dialogue, songs, pieces of music, anything that you can think of that may or may not have been approximated to that phrase classical music, but we contextualize it that way, all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing classical music. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to uh, learn more about uh, past opuses, to donate, and uh, just to engage in general, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club. We were talking about how expensive these hockey uh, tickets are earlier. Mm -hmm. Well, Schubert Club is an organization that does not want money, you know, ticket price to be a barrier for, you know, some of its programming, all the way to having free concerts. You can check out uh, on schubert.org the upcoming schedule of free courtroom concerts hosted by composer Abby Batinas. Their popular courtroom concerts take place at noon, most Thursdays at the Landmark Center in downtown St. Paul, Minnesota. This series features accomplished musicians and composers from the Twin Cities and surrounding area, as well as occasional musical newcomers to the area. Uh, one of the upcoming shows is titled Dream Songs Project. So taking that idea of song and really doing something different about it. So a uh, huge shout out and thank you to Schubert Club. Be sure to check out their free courtroom concerts if you're in the area and uh, check out all of their other programming at Schubert.org. And once again, a huge shout out and thank you to Salestina. Coming up next month, uh, Salestina is kicking off its uh, happy hours with composer Derek Sky. I have to admit, I wasn't uh, yeah. familiar with Derek Sky. I am now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, when I w was first learning about this ha uh, upcoming happy hour, but you say you've aired him on the radio. Or I have got given him some play. Yeah, I can't give you titles, but I yeah. do remember Derek, the the name Derek Sky for sure. It's cool that uh, you know composer names of people who are alive are just becoming more of the conversation. More you know, of that, uh, please. Uh, imagine that, you yeah. know, living people who were celebrating. Anyway, Salestina is uh, celebrating Derek Sky with uh, a happy hour on Saturday, February 4th. Uh, this is at 11 a.m., I'm sure, uh, Pacific time uh, the, at the Pompeium Room at Doheny Mansion. You can get more information on that at salestina.org. Huge shout out to Salestina. Huge shout out to Derek Sky and all of the uh, supporters of of Triloquy. We have Molly Joyce joining me in the third movement today. So excited to tell you a little bit more about her coming up. We ended up with a, a hip hop and R&B second movement this week, didn't we? We did. Going to have some American classical in the second movement uh, and a fiery finale, literally. You know, well, I guess no fire through the microphones, but we will actually <laughs> be talking about some fire. But anyway, for now, we'll jump into movement one. So a few weeks back, uh, this was uh, back on December 22nd, uh, I read uh, just on my Facebook feed uh, something from the Black Administrators of Opera. So this is a, um, a group, like a support group, sort of uh, some say call it a knitting circle, but just really an activist organization that um, uh, supports Black administrators of opera, just 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 as it said. This is um, uh, general directors. Uh, these are uh, folks in development. Just all of the behind the scenes, you know, the lifeblood of that art form. If you're Black, 
those folks and they do really incredible work. Anyway, uh, they posted uh, a letter. They they wrote a letter celebrating a black administrator of opera named Afton Battle. So I did a, a little reading and it looked like um, Afton Battle uh, stepped down as the uh, director of the Fort Worth Opera. I'm going to read a little bit uh, from this article I've pulled up uh, from Opera Wire. The headline is Black Administrators of Opera Release Letter in Support of Afton Battle. I guess I need to give this an, uh, an accidental. I'm going to give it a natural because it seems uh, pretty typical of what some of the uh, unfortunate realities are for black folks in this field. Let me read a little bit here. It says black administrators of opera have issued a public letter in support of Afton battle, the outgoing general and artistic director of Fort Worth opera quote, you have demonstrated competence, courage, and leadership in your successful tenure with Fort Worth opera experienced uh, as an opera singer, arts administrator, fundraiser, and arts activist. You are uniquely poised to fill the role of Fort Worth opera's general and artistic director. From the beginning of this, Scott, it sounds like uh, she was dismissed or let go. That's what I was thinking. But a, but a little bit further down here, it says Battle commenced her tenure back in 2020 and then announced her resignation on November 23rd, 2022. So I do want to make sure folks understand that, uh, you know, we're talking about Afton having uh, resigned the position and mm. not uh, stuck in mm-hmm. the position. So we really had a lot of hope. Fact check me if I'm wrong, but I don't know of another black woman leading an opera company in the United States. So, you know, in this regard, at at that level of opera, you know, it's less diverse now. Mm -hmm. We had a lot Mm -hmm. of hope and there was some good work done, but we're, uh, we're seeing more and more folks just decide to do for themselves instead of for an industry that you know, doesn't look like it's going to move. Of course, it goes even beyond uh, the the racial conversation because uh, we talked about Marin Alsop. You know, when she left her job with right. Baltimore, she specifically called the institution in Ivory Tower and talked about how she couldn't budget. What's your reaction to folks putting down the plow and walking away? Esperanza Spalding too. Yeah, left Harvard. Yeah, um, which was a big deal. That was a huge blow for them for Harvard. I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you that it sounded like she had been ousted mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. But almost like her not saying anything is almost louder than uh, some big public statement, don't you think? Yeah. Because, uh, there is, correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't get through the whole article, but there is no quote from from Afton, is there? There actually is. So let me read a little bit more. Uh, So again, talking about uh, announced her resignation in November, it says that notice came months after she had taken to social media to state that, quote, y'all know the challenges of being black in this world. Magnify that with being a woman running an arts organization in a conservative city and state running Mm. this company hasn't been easy, y'all. And I'm sure you can guess why. Mm. I think that's a part Mm -hmm. of this general conversation and why we're talking about it, why why the people are talking about it, because we can go on here and list, you know, or she could have gone on here and listed all of the problems she had and X, Y, and Z, this wasn't going right. They wouldn't listen to me do this. Uh, I think we just know why we, we don't, we don't need all of that information. We don't need those receipts because we just understand how it is in this ecosystem. And she wasn't just, you know, the diversity hire either. It says here in the article that in addition to her skills in the opera world, she uh, 
made the ensemble uh, like size appropriate, I think was the mm-hmm. word that they used. Yeah. And they were starting to work within their means and doing, uh, getting closer to being in the black. Right. So <laughs> that's another loss. And what we need- That's to, a multi-talented person. What, what, what we need to talk about more, I think just in the arts in general, is talk about the role that boards of directors play for nonprofits, specifically arts nonprofits, and probably even more specifically, excuse me, performing arts nonprofits. Uh, Afton Battle was the executive director, and I think a lot of people will hear that title and think of her as being at the top of the ship, which she is, Mm -hmm. you know, or was in, in many ways. But at the end of the day, she answers to a board. Every executive director of every arts or whatever answers to a board of directors. And sometimes these boards, um, and, and I'm not speaking directly to this one, you know, before anyone tries me, but I think a lot of boards are good at throwing rocks and hiding their hands or, you know, having an opinion, wanting to hold down a, a tradition or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And people don't know who they are, but they do know that they can go on the website and learn who the executive director is. Let me repeat myself. I don't know anyone at Fort Worth. I'm not talking about them, but I am making the point that that has to be considered more and more when we think about why people are stepping down uh, from these jobs, why people are exploring more of the entrepreneurial uh, uh, world as executive directors and and high level um, folks at these arts organizations. The boards prove, you know, to to really be a challenge. Okay, for somebody who doesn't have much exposure to boards, i.e., me, is that like a Supreme Court thing? You get appointed <laughs> and you're there for life, or is there a time limit? So some organizations have uh, board limits of uh, two years. Uh, most organizations I've been a part of have terms at the very least. So, mm-hmm. you know, you do have to okay. commit to a certain amount of time. And then if you want to re-up it, you can. So yeah. are they compensated in any way? Uh, not that I know of. Okay. I mean, there there are, you know, I don't know, board happy hours or, you know, there there are perks to being on many boards, but it's not something that you get paid for. That's not a that's not a part of the thing is more often than not the flip side of that. You know, it's your job to ensure uh, or help ensure uh, the, the financial uh, stability of the organization. But the main reason why I ask is you can see how so- an organization might stagnate if you get a board in there that is then there for you know four decades and that's the the thing we talk because again they're sort of behind the scenes Mm. it's easier to talk about diversify this orchestra Mm -hmm. than diversify this board Mm. you know and Mm. because of capitalism and the way so many things work it's hard to have a board that you know is full of young people sure. if, you know the, the the financial wires aren't tied there with that being said you know shout out to dell he's uh on the board of uh the west side community organization here in saint paul and you know they just view fundraising differently they are so dedicated to uh community centric fundraising they have a board that can focus on other things mm. so you know there there's that conversation and mm. taking those examples so but it's at, like a steering committee right yeah okay but at at the end of the day you know all of this to say that uh i, I hope we can expand as an industry expand that conversation a little bit more and think about the role of boards of directors when we talk about diversifying programming, uh, you know, equitable uh, moves forward. And unfortunately, when organizations lose talent, you know, rare talent like Afton Battle. Before we leave this, I wanted to uh, read the final little bit here uh, from this article. It says, uh, Percara News 
Several former board members left the company over concerns about the direction Battle was taking the organization. Less than one month after Battle announced her resignation, the company already had her replacement, Angela Turner Wilson, lined up. So you see, when when you're talking about hiring an executive director, that's something that the board really has to you know take on. Very interesting that you know they already had her. Lined up right there. Uh, finding a new executive director is something that takes a long time. I have a lot of pending emails in my inbox from a lot of organizations who can't move forward with things that I'm trying to collaborate with them on because they're in the executive director search. You know, Damn. it takes a long time, but it only took this organization one month. Hmm, very interesting. Mm. So, again, I don't know anybody on this board. I'm not, you know, if you can connect the same dots that I'm connecting here and um, we're going we're gonna to support and surround our sister Afton Battle just as black administrators of opera did, you know, just to circle back to that before we leave this. Isn't it so incredible that something can happen like this? And not only do you have individuals who got your back and, you know, are, are patting you and saying that, you know, you did a great job and X, Y, and Z, there are organizations built to do that and mm. built to systematize that sort of support. It's a beautiful thing. So I have to give a shout out to Black Administrators of Opera as well. Maybe maybe public radio needs, a, a as I said, a knitting circle of sorts, a, a, a support group for of those knitters. of you really trying to... <laughs> I don't think that's a bad word. You know, I've, I've heard that used not pejoratively, knitting. I wish I could sure. knit, for goodness sake. Yeah. Anyway, um, shout out to uh, Afton Battle. Thank you to Black Administrators of Opera for being an incredible um, example of what support is. And uh, let's continue the conversation of really um, interrogating the role of boards of directors and all of this work we're trying to do. One of the incredible things that Afton Battle was able to accomplish uh, during her short tenure uh, with this opera company was to uh, produce a night of black excellence where there were um, the old school singers, you know, the the old guard, so to speak, some of the more seasoned uh, black opera professionals out there and some of the up and coming superstars, you know, all together in a production just to celebrate Black Excellence, as mm. it's titled here. So here's the uh, promo for that uh, that went down last year to get us into our next accidental. Shout out to Afton Battle. The community of Fort Worth not only needs this concert, but they deserve it. I want to go back. I just want to uh, uh, underscore uh, what we heard Afton Battle say at the very opening of that promo. This is a concert that the community not only needs, but deserves. Oh my mm. gosh, I almost want to get choked up really thinking about the implication of that framing. Yeah. What if we yeah. just in general talked about our audiences deserve this broader uh perspective. Yeah. You know, th this I don't I don't know. S say say more to that. How could you weave that into a, a radio break or talking to somebody who uh you need to uh convince to expand programming? How would you use that framing? Yeah, I think that um Bobby McFerrin said something um when I interviewed him ages ago at KVNO. Um music is like different rooms in your house. Mm -hmm. And you never spend all your time in the bathroom. Right. Just like you don't spend- <laughs> Unless something is wrong, you know? <laughs> and just like you don't spend all your time listening to country right. or metal or classical, you want to spend time in different areas of your house. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way that I look at it, is that um, I've often said that you you only gain by adding in new works into the canon. And I think that we should take 
the the words of people like Mozart themselves and say, uh, he was saying, look, we're focusing way too much on these people who are dead. And mm -hmm. that was in 1790. Right, listen. <laughs> Real quick, and we'll move on. And in a, in a house where every room is a different genre of music, what genre of music is the bathroom? Well, he said country. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, moving on. That was his. <laughs> yep. Thank you very much. So uh, we have our uh, <laughs> next accidental here. Uh, it's coming from uh, the San Francisco Chronicle. How about you lead us here, Scott? What accidental um, are you thinking about for this one? <laughs> Go ahead. Um, judging from your reactions, I would label it with a flat. Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> but, uh, we gotta, what, what, am I wrong? I, I, no, I think I what, agree with I, you. Are we going to start playing Guess the Accidental I, now? I, I think I agree with you. Go ahead, give this to us. <laughs> okay. You have to be 16 years old to drive, 18 to vote, and 21 to drink, at least in the United States. How old do you have to be to conduct a professional symphony orchestra? See, this sounds your answer. This sounds like somebody who's hurt. Can I start the Jeopardy no, music? No shade. No shade. <laughs> this person is hurt. You know, head, head, headline here: Young musicians keep showing up on concert stages. It's not clear they're ready. So, what's the general? You know, with with, with this. Oh, and let me read a little bit more of this opening. Uh, the writer here says it's a trick question. Of course, there's no minimum age requirement for standing in front of a group of a hundred or so instrumentalists and getting them to perform as one. Doing so takes a rare confluence of gifts under any circumstances: physical, musical, interpersonal. And some people do start amassing them alarmingly early in life. But alarmingly, that doesn't mean. It's an uncomplicatedly good idea. So basically, it sounds like this writer is saying the conductors are getting a little young and the music is suffering because of it. Is that what you got from 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 reading this? Just in the, you know, from the title, from uh, the headline and the first few paragraphs here, it started to uphold what a lot of people have surrounding classical music, which is this idea that it's elite mm. and that you have to be skilled some way. To, to do it or enjoy it. And I think that it kind of held that up. So even within, you know, the, the general idea of classical music being elite, even within, you know, in the classical music house, there's uh, uh, elitism and, and tears of respect and all that sort of thing. There is. And uh, then as you go through and read, you know, he, he, he makes some valid points throughout the article. Sure. Um, you know, um, yeah, I would say that there is definitely something to the the seasoning that you get through study, practice, apprenticeship, yep. that sort of thing that gives you a certain insight into nuance. Yes. And I'll, I'll, maybe I'll talk about that in a second because the writer talks about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And mm -hmm. that's something that I really resonate with. But, you know, w one of my issues with this uh, is that a young conductor is named as the example of his point or like as a means of making his point. So uh, I'm reading here, it says, the latest musical phenom to raise this concern is Klaus Makelab, the 26-year-old Finnish conductor who holds no fewer than three major leadership posts. So this writer talks about uh, some of his different um, uh, performances around the world, especially here in the United States. Um, there's a quote here that says, uh, I suspect that in later years, Michael Law will be embarrassed by his premature debut. As a third party person who, you know, at the you work in radio, but you don't work in orchestras, much less conductors and hiring committees. So as a third party to that, 
Do you find this useful to see uh, somebody shitting on a young com- conductor like this? That was unnecessary shade in in my mind. And if, and if I'm in a conductor's corner, <laughs> you really must be wrong. <laughs> so, um, yeah, embarrassed by the premature debut. Why? Right. What would you? Why would you be embarrassed of you know blossoming early? And let's um, and, and and let's really consider you know that maybe I don't want to hear my first ever radio shift. You know, <laughs> go back and listen to that. Well, I'm audio. sure I don't. I don't even. I haven't listened to the first opus of Triloquy. You know, since we did it, and it get you know. Shout out to y'all. It, it get the first opus gets listens every single week. Though there's that always has numbers. That's so, nuts. Anyway, maybe you know there's something to being embarrassed by a debut because oh I've grown so much since then but maybe that's just a part of may, who who I guess what I'm saying is who isn't you know not embarrassed but who doesn't do a little bit of cringe with their first recital recording or their first radio break or their first whatever right if if I were writing this piece I would highlight all the things that Makela did well sure and then if I felt like something needed to be brought up to counterbalance that then come back around and say you know, you can tell that with the skills that he has shown so far, that after marinating, we're really going to have a talent that yep. is going to, you know, be around for a generation. What's wrong with that? Why do you have to backhand? Is my I'm with question. You. One thing I, w- I want to jump to the end of this piece. It says here there have been orchestra conductors in their twenties who had something to say about Beethoven that was worth hearing, but those exceptions are vanishingly rare. In general. Everyone involved, the artists and their audiences alike, is better served by patience and commitment. I don't know that that is a statement that it's that is fair to make because a 19-year-old's interpretation of Beethoven, learned, academic, um, experienced or not, could please a mass of people in some way. There aren't folks in concert halls, at least not most of them, sitting there with scores in their lap, you know, <laughs> checking for this, this dynamic or mm-hmm. this interest right. or whatever. That right. most of You're the right. folks, let's just keep it real. Most of the people there don't even know what they listening to. Hardly, you know, they they can talk about the who Beethoven was, but you know, come on, they. And and this isn't me trying to sit on a high horse, but if I'm complaining about. Uh, the the traditional tempos of uh, orchestral scherzos and how this conductor oh is doing it a little slow because you know I and, and I can expound on that that's something that most folks don't give a damn about and I feel like that is the assumption that's being made in a statement like that mm. even a sloppily you know put together I, I, I don't know the the orchestras are too good the competition is too high for there to be bad performances by these major orchestras so if interpretations aren't exactly traditional or Mm -hmm. exactly by the book who cares i don't and i know and i know what i'm listening to you know that's a i've studied this music sure that's a good point but again i i think i want to go back to what you said about branding because what if they took it from the perspective of we've got this unshaped diamond of Mm -hmm. a conductor yeah and you're gonna watch him get polished and and shape his style right in front of your eyes. Yeah. What would that be like? It would give folks uh, a new perspective and really uh, broaden the depth of understanding and maybe even entrance, uh, interest in traditional repertoire in that way. You and know? isn't that uh, the orchestra showing its um, at least um, 
openness to moving the music forward. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, yeah, I think this person is a little hurt. I don't know them, <laughs> but I'm a pray for him though. I'm a pray for him anyway. He, there, there are points in there that I see that I get. I'm not, so maybe this is a natural. I yeah. don't know. I get, I get it, and yet I can also argue against it. Well, we'll have the link in the uh, the description, and y'all can read it and uh, form your own opinion. So that's our first movement for this week. I figured uh, to uh, get us into the second movement, we should hear a performance led by Maestro Makela. And it's not a whole bunch of the traditional repertoire that I really you know, like putting on the show. But as a Finnish conductor who uh, has conducted Dvorak and uh, makes those American connections, I, I think it's I think it's fair to, to draw that very long line as Dvorak as American classical music, because mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. at the at the end of the day, you know, maybe not expanded in the way we think of, but certainly developed uh, with uh, American foundational things in mind. So anyway, here's uh, Klaus Makela uh, with the Concertgebouw Orchestra performing the final movement of Dvorak's Ninth Symphony. Let's see what let's see what the, how he did here. <laughs> Tempted. I'm tempted to go back to the uh, to the second movement, the the slow movement. You know, the the going home movement. Sure, it's okay, I, we, we, I, I won't take the time to go back to it today. But let me ask you this: Let's think about what that song means in you know not only the American context, but in the context of uh, the connections to the racial history that Dvorak was around when, you know, he developed and and wrote this symphony. We now have learned, I think, that Going Home uh, was uh, an originally composed song by someone, not a spiritual, uh, because it was often, you know, thought of as a spirit. But anyway, even so, there's still that connection and just the idea of going home. So do you think that context when we talk about what a conductor needs to know lived experience all of those things how important is that context for a german orchestra to play uh this music do you think it would be important for them to understand the idea of uh dvorak's connection and understanding and learning about black folks and the struggle the situation they were in their music whatever that is a vital part of understanding how to perform this piece of music that uh, I agree with that the same way that I would say uh, somebody playing jazz should also be studied in you know where the music comes from or blues or any of that. Yeah. Um, so if we put this on the accidental that we, we were just talking about, there needs to be some study. Right. There needs to be some steeping yeah. in, in the culture. So I will give that writer some room in, in that regard. Uh, and, you know. Let, let's let's support our let's right. support our younglings. Yep, <laughs> and, and not just throw up to the side like heard. That. Anyway, shout out to uh, Maestro Makela, and uh, we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to take the second ending and talk a little bit about some music we have been spending some time with. Uh, 
Let's get started with you. How about you start us this week? For me, the past year that stuck, the album that stuck out the most was Cheat Codes, yep. Danger Mouse and Black Thought. Uh, it came out in August, and I think I caught hold of it near the end of the month. And as I looked back and I thought about listening to it that week, that was a week that I can look at and think I was so happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I literally felt good and lighter. Almost like I found a, a mixtape that somebody put together that nobody else had yeah. listening to it. Now, Belize was the track that got a lot of traction. But for me, uh, the um, track number four, No Gold Teeth, was the track. And, you know, you talk about uh, needing vacation and the time away that you've had here over the holidays. Mm-hmm. And No Gold Teeth is about grinding, mm-hmm. is about going out and and making that paper right there was a few lines here that i wanted to even from the first start the first lyrics wind in my face hound at my heels at the end i'm winning this race only then can i chill Mm -hmm. all the way down here uh this was the line for me time keeps running like a river it don't cease in the mind of a super mm -mm, it's no peace can't stop running till i'm a can't stop running like i'm ducking from police Cooley high, they trying to treat me like Cochise. Mm, mm. He's, it's just this this idea of constantly having to be on the run and yep. on the hustle. Mm-hmm. And aren't we talking about not doing that? <laughs> Let's hear a little bit of it. No gold teeth, danger mouse, and black thought. Wind up my face, hound at my heels At the end I'm winning this race Only thinking I chill with children Don't ever try to stagnate the magnate When it's money on the line, never make the bag wait I just add weight to the bag until a bag break That holy swag make the cash get the gas face In the first place, I got no motherfucker business coming in last place My birthplace taught me not to stop I'm more advanced than my classmates I came into the game on a fast break And I'm gang gang like Billy Bathgate The protagonist and I narrate In the same slang that Billy so let me ask you this, you know, in this year of 2023, we have the 50th anniversary of hip hop mm-hmm. coming up uh, in August. I, I, I'm sorry, I, August 18th. I'll just drag me if that's the date is wrong. I think it's August. Anyway, you've been um, around for all of those 50 years, maybe not, you know, listening to music or whatever, you know, you're being yeah. all of that. Anyway, so you have seen a lot of hip hop, a lot of its growth evolution you know all of that in recognizing and celebrating its 50th anniversary considering everything you've seen in hip-hop where do you put this album is this album included in the 50th birthday celebration of the genre of hip-hop i would use this album to show staying power but also the way that the music uh shows some reverence to uh, its origins, where it came from. You know, there's um, a sh- there's lo- loads of shout outs. Yeah. Um, All the samples and, and stuff. Uh, yeah. Right. And, you know, and he's also uh, given lots of shout outs. He was born in Philadelphia, so he's given lots of props to his hometown. He calls people Johns, you know, mm-hmm. the, wh- wh- whatever a John is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess um, you need to get on Twitter and learn, huh? Yeah. No, I, I looked it up, but it still does. It's, um, it, it says here that. Uh, it's used to refer to a thing, place, or person, or event 
that one need not or cannot give a specific name to. Mm-hmm. See, down south we would say junt. Okay. <laughs> anyway, but but you would you would put that in here. You know that that would that would be a part of. Shout out to hip hop. This album. Sure, because it shows, like I said, not only its staying power, but also the reverence for where it came from and uh, uh, charting new courses, new sounds. All right. Yeah. Well, here's a little bit of the end of that. No gold teeth again from Danger Mouse and Black Thought. It's that guitar. The God of the microphone, praise the Lord. Anybody disagree with me, then raise your sword. I'm Agent Orange, poisonous, amazing poems, and the band keeps raging on. Listen to me, I won't. Don't stop. No, I don't quit. Yo, I don't stop. Yo, I don't quit. Build. So I might, you know, if 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 I want to, you know, talk about this, how how much I like this tune, you know, that jump hard, or you know, if we recorded too long, dang, that jump too long, you know. <laughs> anyway, a little vocabulary lesson here. Anyway, thanks for that. Okay, so you know, you went back to uh, 2022, and I went to as well. Lots of great music uh, in 2022. I was actually finding myself a little uh, choked up. Uh, just walking around, picking up the house, getting ready for New Year's Eve um, earlier in the day on December 31st because I uh, put in my earbuds and was just listening to uh, my top plays, you know, how YouTube will put together the list. Uh, Apple Music put together a a good list for me. So I'm listening to these tracks and I'm remembering parts of the year based on those tracks. So, you know, uh, Drake's Dance album that came out last year, I think about Juneteenth and and performing with the Illharmonic in Washington, D.C. and and all that sort of thing. Of course, Alicia Keys, I'm thinking about those trips back and forth to New York all last year. Anyway, um, and one of the albums that did not uh, make it to me. One of the artists who came out with some music uh, was SZA, and, I, and maybe we've talked about SZA before on uh, on Triloquy. But Dell was listening to the album. It came out in January. It came, I mean, uh, December. It came out late 2022. Mm-hmm. But he kept re- just repeating it, repeating it, repeating it, um, and talking about how good it was and and that sort of thing. So we're riding around in the car one day, and he puts it on, and the bug finally got me. I guess I was sat down and and was really uh, uh, put in front of it in a way. That I just, you know, heard some incredible contemporary R and B. I think, mm. you know, next to Beyonce's Renaissance, I would have to put SZA's uh, album up there as as uh, number two. Uh, all sorts of great vibes in there. You know, got the heartbreak songs, got the, mm. you know, I'm moving on songs. Just classic uh, R and B music. But the track that uh, I, I've repeated the most, and I'm continuing to repeat, is called too late it has that smooth sort of feel about it Mm. but a a sort of upbeat beat to it i don't know it's hard for me to explain here's a bit of the uh, opening of it too late by scissor Love, moving so close, we 
So do you see what I mean? It's definitely like got the the very, you know, active, just a hard beat there, you know, that gets your head bobbing. At the same time, you still feel like you're listening to something smooth. You're, you're not listening to some, you know, heavy rap. You're not listening to some shoot 'em up. You're listening to R&B, but, mm. but it's got that thing about it. And then the lyrics, you know, um, uh, uh, what, it, what was the lyric that got me? Uh, had to be alone to figure out how I should be loved. And if it's just us, is that enough? Is it bad that I want more? Just really excited. That's oh, a good line. Goodness gracious. That's a really good line. Shout out to SZA. Oh my gosh. Where, where are my uh, air horns? I, I, I wasn't an unfan. Like I wasn't not a fan of SZA. SZA just wasn't really on my radar as, as much as other artists are. SZA's on my radar now. Oh my gosh. This album. Goodness gracious. When What's you, it called? It's called SOS. The album mm. is called SOS. When you think about the love song, the the song that you just, <laughs> you know, is is helping you wallow in a feeling. You know, we, we all have had those times, you know. Yes. Are there those sorts of songs uh, that, you know, you can do that, but also just, you know, get into a little groove? Maybe there are, but I can't think of many. And maybe I think that's really one of the reasons I love this album and this song in particular. You can be in your feelings, you know, you can listen to that sad R&B song, but you're still going to scoot a little bit while you're listening to it, you know? I do that, but ha <laughs> have you had any artists that have been ruined for you that way? Like I don't think so. No, so like even like music that you associate with exes and all that. You oh, can... I see what you mean. I see. What, I do have a, a few of those songs. So, yeah. for example, Solange's "Losing You." I've played that song for mm. you, and and it's another great example, like that upbeat feeling. But the melancholy of it, goodness gracious, I just you know it, it's hard to listen to. But that pain can be so beautiful. That dissonance can be so beautiful, and that's what SZA does so so well. A little, a, a bit of the end of this track again. Too late. Uh, by SZA from the album SOS. And there's even a little bit of that uh, gu guitar finger style playing in there that you could apply if you felt like another little finger exercise. It's or very something. nice. Anyway, shout out to SZA. Thank you for some really great music in 2022. Well, we're uh, transitioning here into our third movement, and I'm very honored uh, this week to feature my conversation with the musician and composer Molly Joyce. I'll read from her website here. It says, Molly Joyce is a composer and performer whose work focuses on disability as a creative source. She has been deemed one of the most versatile, prolific, and intriguing composers working under the vast new music dome by the Washington Post. We talk a lot about equity when it comes to gender. Of course, we talk about equity when it comes to race. We don't spend as much time, and I'm even you know talking specifically about us here on Triloquy, talking about equity when it comes to disability, different abilities, uh, accommodation. So you know that's one of the the big reasons I'm just really honored to be able to feature this conversation. It's a it's a corner of the arts that uh, I don't have a lot of uh, experience engaging. I think there is so much room that the arts needs to do in general when it comes to uh, being more accommodating of neurodivergent 
neurodivergence and different physical disabilities. Mm. And it's really where uh, Molly has centered her uh, career. So we, we talk about um, that concept broadly, but also about her new album called Perspective. Uh, it came out uh, uh, recently, and it and it basically talks about different aspects of uh, accessibility and, you know, inaccessibility through soundscapes, through music, and through dialogue. Uh, each, each track is titled uh, with a, a different sort of theme under that idea. And we're going to get into my conversation with the track titled Strength. I really appreciate this one. So just a bit here um, from the album perspective to get us into my conversation with Molly Joyce. Hope you all enjoy. What is strength for you? Going out in the darkness when you're, you're afraid of, of the dark. Strength is knowing who you are, what you do, how well you do it, and choosing to live in that. Vulnerability. Being able to um, find that community, share with that community, and then work with that community to bridge the gaps that currently exist. I had my car accident around the age of seven. I was not thinking about like the term disability for a while. You know, I think if anything, I wanted to kind of normalize myself or deny that this happened. Like I would wear long sleeves a lot, just trying to not really reckon with it, which I feel like, of course, now I've taken a 180. And I feel like when you say that, it's hard to really deny a part of your body for so long or act like it's not influencing your life kind of. Yeah. Um, and then this really changed in graduate school um, at Yale, where I did an independent study in disability studies and started reading about disabilities of social construction and how it just your own embodiment can influence, you know, the way you interact with the world. And I started thinking about my own artistic work and then accompanied with like performing on the organ more. Um, but at first, I think I more transitioned from like, I'd call it like my weaker left side to then hmm. like I have an impairment because I was learning more about disability arts and was very interested in it, but I felt like I couldn't really claim that word for someone that might be more severely disabled or is in a wheelchair. I felt like maybe that would be offensive or something. I just, I really was not sure. Um, and then one of my collaborators, actually the dancer, John Herman, who's disabled um, as well. And I believe he pushed me on it once, or he said, do you even like identify as disabled? And he wasn't necessarily forcing me, but really, I think trying to show that it's really kind of an identity for all all to claim and um, learn from. Yeah, I've I've been called to the carpet a few times when I've <laughs> used the phrase different ability. You know, mm -hmm. the the way that, you know, I've always seen the issue is that it's the world that has the inability or the disability mm -hmm. in that, you know, the the infrastructures should fit everyone you know yeah. so it's it's the infrastructures that have the disability not the yeah. individuals and and i'm still working through you know my comfort level with the word disability you know mm -hmm. i definitely you know defer to people in disabled communities when it comes yeah. to use of that word but I don't know. For me, it's hard not to cast blame on the systems yeah. as opposed to the individuals. But then even when I say cast blame in conjunction with the word disability, it, it feels weird. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. what, what do you what, what can you offer to, to people who are not in the disabled uh, community, a part mm -hmm. of disabled communities, but want to engage in a genuine mm -hmm. way and in, in, in a way that um, is comfortable and, and equitable mm -hmm. for everyone? Yeah, definitely. I would say that I feel like for me, it really just 
I always ask like the individual what they prefer to be called because sure. I think even like people in some of my projects do not want to be called disabled or they still want to in- participate in the project, but they don't want that label. And um, I would say I know, or it just made me think about like, I think a lot of, so there's like the social model of disability, which identifies disability as a social construction, kind of like you're saying, like looking at the outer world for what to fix, um, like, you know, uh, stairs instead of ramps or wheelchair access, right. et cetera. Um, but then a lot of more recent critiques, at least in like scholarly circles of that model, say it doesn't even recognize the impairment or like pain, et cetera, that comes with disability, like doesn't recognize the medical side, which I really relate to too. Like for me, the ideal is the happy medium, <laughs> like recognizing the lived experience, but also what needs to change in society to not trying to hit it all in society as well, recognizing that experience. Um, and then just on a personal note too, like the more I think about, it, I mean, I haven't done a huge term study of disability, but I love how I feel like it. this is literally like the notion of ability. Like to me, that's such a false sense. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's like kind of an impossible level to reach in a way. And so that's why I kind of love it even more. And it's fascinating to me too, how it makes people uncomfortable or something, you know, and it did for me for a while too, I think before I really started getting used to it. Um, and I will just add to one of this legendary disability activist, Judith Human. she said to me once, like, I don't see disability anywhere in your bio. Um, and that really stuck with me because I feel like her philosophy is the more people see it, the more it'll get legitimized in society in a way, just even that term. Um, and that really stuck with me as well, just that I think people like skirt around it a lot or it's not seen as not enough as a legit- legitimate identity. Yeah, I was actually going to ask about your interaction with Judith uh-huh. Human. You know, for, for folks who don't know, I wonder if you could talk about why she is significant uh, mm-hmm. to these conversations and how the two of you uh, ended mm-hmm. up in front of each other in dialogue. Yeah, definitely. And and I guess her nickname is more like Judy Human. And I feel like I'm biased, but she's really a legend in the disability rights movement. I feel like she's like the MLK of the movement or something. Yeah. She has a, a memoir that came out about three years ago now, which I highly recommend. It's a nice, easy read. I think it'll be released as a movie at, on Apple TV in a couple of years. Um, and she's also featured heavily in the Oscar nominated film Crip Camp. Um, hmm. And she's about she's almost 75 now. And I was really fortunate just to meet with her once in D.C. or through another friend of mine. Like I tried to meet with her and she's so open to anyone like that reaches out. Like I'm amazed at someone, her stature and busyness, et cetera. Um, and she's really just such an amazing mentor in so many ways to so many people. And that I feel like she always knows the right question to ask at the right time. Um, and that kind of started this project a while, as well, where she was asking me about weakness um, and so many questions, even like when she was pointing out my bio, like she always knows how to kind mm-hmm. of push you along and progress your thinking. So the album Perspective, in part, it, it sounds like, was uh, under the inspiration of of those conversations, of that meeting. Yeah, definitely. So I was in um, D.C. for like a year long fellowship from 2019 to 2020 um, and was trying to meet with her. And we were planning a panel together, actually, at my fellowship on disability and creativity. Um, And so we started talking about what we would ask the panelists and really kind of questions and concepts that are really crucial to the disabled experience, um, such as weakness. Um, I mean, and naturally that concept came up because she asked. Well, I refer to my left hand as weak and because I always had this like natural rea- reaction to call it that. Um, so then we started talking about weakness and other concepts and that really set the panel in motion. 
which the panel got canceled with, with COVID, but, mm. but also set this project in motion at the same time where I wanted to record people answering those questions, um, add music underneath, make it more kind of an installation. Yeah, as, as someone who, you know, makes a living through dialogue, I really <laughs> love musical albums that really uh -huh. engage dialogue. And I, and I find the questions that you ask to be really provocative on the album. I, I appreciate mm -hmm. that placement. I wonder, as you ask questions like, you know, how do you define weakness? How do you define access on this album? What was your engagement with those questions? Mm -hmm. Did you ever did you ever find yourself uh, <laughs> maybe changing your perspective on those questions based on what other people were offering? Definitely. Yeah. I guess like just to, and like, I came to those questions through like, yeah, like the weakness one, the personal one, and then some concepts that really kind of frustrated me, like control assumption, um, and also concepts that I knew were pretty popular in disability studies literature, like interdependence, um, pure, et cetera. Um, and I think hearing the interviews responses, I feel like I am even more confused now in a good way, kind of on what the <laughs> questions mean, or, or really just broaden my understanding, definitely, which I think I, not saying I like 100% expected, but I did know, obviously, I probably was not going to get the same answer for each or something, or that I would be curious what they would say. And, and then certainly, several interviewees had acquired disabilities like mine. So some of their answers when they spoke to that experience, I definitely resonated with me. I wonder what those conversations look like specifically when we talk about acquired disability versus people mm. who were born with certain disability. I'm, I'm sure there's some interesting interplay yeah. there. Yeah, definitely. I think it didn't come up all the time in the questions, to be honest, with you, or just because the questions are more just what is access for? I wasn't trying to focus on that. But mm -hmm. I know some of the like one interview in particular has a vision impairment. Um, her name's Dayo Muhammad. She's actually director of disability policy at the White House now, just to plug her. But, um, and she said, like, I think it was the one for cure. And she was like, talking about how, like, you wonder, you know, of course, you wonder what if this didn't happen, or if you could just flip mm -hmm. a switch and go back to the way you were, but then you wonder, like, will I be the same or something? And I feel like that's such a haunting question, at least for me personally, as well. Like, you do wonder, like, if something hadn't happened that day or something. And I'm not sure with her disability, if it was progressive or sudden like mine kind of sudden requirement but um but definitely be interesting for a future project as well to compare those experiences so the music that's matched with uh these dialogues on the album uh well first of all i'll ask it sounds like the dialogues came first correct yeah definitely all the interviews yeah so so was so was the music that uh goes with it were you reacting to the questions or the answers to the questions? did you have aesthetics in mind i wonder if you'll talk a little bit about the the musical process that gave us this album yeah definitely so with all the interview their answers i kind of edited them down to the highlights for each section and then ordered them in a way that i Thought was hopefully interesting like sometimes if they had similar answers i'd group those together um, i definitely tried to diversify even just the interviewees their tones like speaking tones to vary it as well and if they had answers that contradicted each other i tried to put those next to each other too just to show the diversity of like um of opinions from the disability community and then with the music it was very much i would say intuitive like off of those answers and that mood that i felt like their answers suggested um, I know between each section, I would try to vary it a little bit. Like if one section was very organy, maybe go to a more voice heavy one, the next one, or sometimes a little more drum heavy. 
Um, and sometimes with the music too, I was, I think only one or two sections. I kind of suggested my own feeling of it. Like with Cure, there's a lot of um, arpeggios that uh, like are kind of major-y and I feel like for me almost a gesture like a, a, a carnival or a fantasy land and how mm-hmm. there can be kind of a fantasy in a way or it's like you're never going to reach it or something. It's always right beyond your grasp. Yeah. And there's so much more represented on this album than the toy organ. I, I, I think it's really incredible to you know hear how the idea of composition is expanding into the more you know electronic side of things, and not that it's a, a, a new phenomenon. It's it's always been around, but I don't know. From my perspective, it seems like it's becoming a part of the mainstream of what we consider classical. I, I wonder if you have. A similar experience. Do do you see the aesthetics that you created becoming more normalized in general performance spaces? Oh, definitely. I mean, of course, I would love that selfishly. I think, yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, I think like it just offers more, you know, possibilities for the sound world um, and for audiences alike. Because I think obviously electronics has a more tie to, um, I would say, more mainstream like pop music that you hear on the radio every day. But, mm-hmm. And who would you say is the audience for this album? I, I see it as an album that, you know, can really raise awareness. I see it as an album that can also cultivate affirmation of, of certain perspectives, perspective as the album is is titled. I, I wonder, do you have a target audience or or if that's a question you even considered? Yeah, I think to be honest, I don't think about like a specific target audience, at least when I'm creating it, I think, or I just want to make the best work and it can create um I think with some iterations of the project, like the Minnesota one, I knew that some of the interviewees would see it in person, like in the installation form. And so mm-hmm. definitely I was hoping to just honor them as much as possible and make them hopefully proud or on like, you know, excited to participate in it. Um, but I really hope that any and everyone could get something from the album and, and hopefully it could be used as a tool really for disability rights or arts or arts activism in a way, especially for incorporating accessibility in the project as well. Do you think there is a version or a arrangement of aspects of this album that could, I don't know, make it to an orchestral stage or to a chamber yeah. music stage? What, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's funny you asked that actually, because I'm making a version of two of the tracks now for the New York ensemble Pope Mama, or they're just a duo percussion uh, saxophone and making it with more um, improvised in a way. So like giving them the little samples for each interviewee answer, and then they can trigger it live and improvise under it and providing some frameworks to improvise, like based off the music I wrote, but not super strict. Um, so I'm excited to see how that goes. And I think that would be a dream of mine to open it up to uh, other performers, especially non-disabled performers or beyond myself. Yeah. And I wonder if you can say more about improvisation from the composer standpoint, you know, <laughs> as, as much as things are evolving, I think there, it's fair to say there are a lot of people who still think of a composer as someone who writes down the exact notes that someone yeah. else is, is going to play. What, what's, what's your engagement or relationship with improvisation when it comes to the artists you work with? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm learning a lot myself now. Actually, I'm taking a class with Nicole Mitchell at the University of Virginia. Oh, yeah studying so that's where she really prompted me or her exercises to think about that in general and then I started exploring it with this work I think with the combination of having the interviewee voices or some pre-recorded material but then letting people kind of respond to that um, 
So that's how I'm first responding to it. But I feel like even when I recorded this work, a lot of it was improvised or some of it I would just like play through and then, you know, finesse it further. Um, but I really like just trying to have that openness for people to, again, especially like in, in this version, like responding to something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that I've, I've enjoyed thinking about, you know, I, I read a book where um, Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter likened conversation to improvisation and, you know, oh, yeah. and, and, and the relationships therein. I, so, you know, I, I mentioned that going back to the improvisatory collaborative nature of the conversations that you had in creating this oh, yeah. album, I wonder how accessibility played a role uh, in, into the cultivation of, of that audio? I mean, was it Zoom? Did you ever have to, you know, think about, you know, um, auditory accessibility or, or or those sorts of things? I, I wonder how accessibility played a role in into the cultivating of, of, the, of that aspect of the improvisation. Yeah, definitely. So most of the interviews were done, like, as a half in person, most over Zoom. Uh, sometimes I would trigger the captions if the interviewee requested and then I had one uh, deaf participant who just responded over email or preferred to do it over email and then um, said that I could read off his just for the oral purposes. And then I had one non-speaking um, poet who responded with poetry over email and then she agreed to that I could read it off with my voice. Um, and I would say, I feel like that is one big shortcoming of this album. That was hard for me to get a lot of deaf and hard of hearing participants. Um, I think generally, or I don't want to generalize, but sometimes it is harder to reach them, I would say, within the disability community compared to other disabilities, which is fine. Or so I'm not saying it's a problem, but um, but in recent interview projects, I've been get, able to get some more deaf pers perspective or sorry, participants um, and usually hire a sign language interpreter for the interviews like over Zoom. Yeah. And you remind me of just, you know, one of the earlier points in this conversation, the idea of disability being a, a social construct, you know, over Zoom, there there are the tools for um, captions or, you know, yeah. different different audio levels, you know, if anyone uh, is able to use sign language, that's something that, you know, can be facilitated through Zoom. So it seems like, you know, cognitively, there are some spaces where disability or ability aren't as, you know, profound as as they are in in other spaces it reminds yeah. me of you know I, I pulled a quote from uh, your album you know when yeah. you ask about darkness you know the response even in darkness you see swirls of color you know I, yeah. I, so you know all all of that to ask you how cognitive or how much of a construct is the conversation generally when we actually begin to think about making accessibility uh making accommodation just a part of the norm. If every space or, you know, if more and more spaces become more accessible to more people, it seems like the concept yeah. of disability may be able to completely go away. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think, um, yeah, like one, I think everyone, th yeah, like spaces need to be more accessible, et cetera. And I'm curious if it would go away or not, or I don't, yeah, I really have to think about it because I feel like a lot of the disabled artists and so forth would say it's not never going to go away or something mm -hmm. it's not a way that you know i think one of my interviewees too had i think a response to access or something that 
you know, people sometimes think they have like a checklist or something and it's right. like an all or nothing approach or something like there's no room for the in-betweens. Um, and I think dis- disability needs always change as technology changes as well, like for good or bad way. And, and often sometimes, at least in my personal experience with artistic accessibility, when you provide more accessibility in one area, you might be impeding another area, especially for different audiences. And for me, I think there's always more to learn from an experiment with, especially with artistic productions, at least like providing multiple, multiple versions of something or online and in-person versions. Um, And I think unless, to be honest, like budgets are unlimited or something, I don't think it'll always be peak, you know, max hundred percent. So I think there's always ways to experiment to improve. And I wonder how you respond to the question uh, personally. I mean, for me, a part of me has to believe that the patriarchy can be dismantled. A part of me has to believe that we can end racism. I mean, yeah, and, and maybe yeah. that's naive of me, but do, do you believe we can get to a space where, you know, disability is only conceptual and that every space has, you know, really gone in and done the work mm-hmm. of creating accessibility for all people, or at least for as many people mm-hmm. as possible. Do you have that hope? Is it right to even have that uh, hope? Um, I mean, I definitely have the hope for, yeah, like spaces, very, very accessible. Um, also for disabled artists in general to be more on mainstream stages, I would say, regardless of the genre, et cetera. Um, but I don't think it'll ever deny in a way or, um, Sorry, like turn down the lived experience of disability, um, mm. especially for a lot of disabled artists, even myself, like your body changes as you age into your disability as well. Mm. Um, and I think that's what a lot of our work is grounded in. And, um, and that's what and I like, you know, being grounded in that, or creating work inspired by that. And speaking of the cognitive, I wonder if any of your work or research has gone into non-physical disability. Mm -hmm. I wonder what's uh, been your uh, perspective or work with uh, Mm -hmm. neurodivergence and and those sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, I feel like I'm always definitely learning a lot in that area. And several of the interviewees here, um, I would say have cognitive disabilities and I've worked a lot with this choir in um, Cambridge, actually, Massachusetts, called Cambridge Common Voices, um, which features singers from Harvard and singers from Lesley University, um, which has a lot of students with intellectual disabilities. Um, So I've written a piece for them featuring their contributions. And I also might do an iteration of this project with CADA, which is, um, I think they stand for Community Access Through the Arts. They're in Massachusetts as well, featuring artists with intellectual disabilities. Um, But I try to I guess personally have these projects come about naturally if possible, not for sure. some, I think there's a really long history. I mean, with any disabled disability community, especially that community of, you know, institutionalization, um, exploitation, et cetera. So I try to do it as ethically and as, um, organically as possible. Yep. And with many of the organizations that I work with, you know, a phrase that comes up is, you know, we can't be all things to all people, but we can, you know, yeah. be as many things to as many people as yeah. possible. I think one of the obvious questions that I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, you know, how do we musically engage people who can't hear the music? I mean, what does what does that even mean? What does music mean, you know, for for those people, at least through the work that you've done? Yeah, definitely. And that's what, I don't mean to have the same answer to anything, but I feel like I'm always learning more with this. But for me, it's definitely been a process of hiring, especially for dance productions or when I have the budget, like sign language interpreters. And then I hire a deaf consultant too, to give feedback 
on the sign language interpretation and even in more recent performances, we have the deaf consultant as a sign language interpreter in certain spots as well, which is super exciting for me um, to have her in the performance. And then recently I've just kind of started on this, but I started experimenting with vibrational like technology um, to feel vibrations from the music, like wearable haptic technology, um, which has its own, you know, opportunities and challenges as well, because maybe not everyone can have that in a concert, but I'm really excited by those prospects. Um, And then also on a personal standpoint too, I always, at least some of my solo performances have video with open captions. Um, I'm not saying it's perfect, but at least having open captions so the lyrics and content presented is good. Um, and one more thing. So I usually have sound descriptions too of each piece I play um, written by my friend who's a blind artist, Andy Slater. Um, so he'll, the sound descriptions describe the song I'm about to perform, but they're usually very like poetic and artistic. So hopefully set the scene for someone that um, can't hear the music as much. Yep. And as we talk about people in these spaces with access to these different tools, you know, Mm -hmm. I can't help but to think about the intersectional nature of disabled communities, Mm -hmm. you know, the the different levels of privilege that exist even therein. I wonder Mm -hmm. if you've uh, engaged that conversation or, or, or at least the thought of intersectionality as it applies exclusively to disabled mm-hmm. communities. Is that a conversation you've approached or engaged? Yeah, definitely. Maybe not super explicitly in my work, I think, but um, mm-hmm. I think it does come up, you know, about like quite naturally in a way, or even I think a lot of my collaborators, like even the collaborator, John Herman, like we all have multiple identities in a way. And I think it's mm-hmm. definitely been very big in some classes I've taken on that as well. Um, and I think there's always an interesting intersection with like aging as well or different audiences too. What 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 impact do you think projects like Perspective have on the musical ecosystem generally? I mean, we're we're as much as we can dig into the the nuances and intersections of music in different communities. We're still dealing largely with an with an ecosystem that centers Beethoven. If we just look yeah. at the at look at the numbers, I, I, I wonder if you see a, a broader impact toward reshaping and, and shifting the music that's engaged in these spaces generally. Can perspective be considered a, a weapon in that battle? So <laughs> yeah, and just to point out too, of course, Beethoven became disabled. You know, probably wrote, oh, that's wrote true. interesting music when he became, you know. That's true. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, I probably, it's probably not, maybe I shouldn't put myself down, but this project is probably ideally more of an installation or something. So I don't know mm. if it's like the best weapon, if you will, on the concert stage, you can <laughs> sure. perform selections from it, but usually with other songs. Um, but if anything, I would hope it, you know, provokes even just discussion, of course, about disability viewpoints, these concepts, et cetera, the interviewees, um, but also providing I mean, I guess ideally maybe a model or, or an example, at least, of more communally engaged art forms that really, you know, authentically highlight these um, viewpoints as literally and figuratively as possible. And then also an example for like artistic accessibility, like the accompanying videos are only open captions and hopefully highlighting how captions can be an artistic aesthetic in and of themselves. They don't always have to be an add on and it can mm-hmm. be a rewarding artistic experience, um, having the video and then the interviewees' voices. The point you made about Beethoven has triggered a question for me. (laughs) I I get so 
frustrated for me, you know, when you know, an organization talks about diverse programming and we're yeah. talking about Joseph Bologna, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, you know, other age old black composers whose aesthetic fits into, you know, what we're trying to to shift. What what do you say to the concert programmer who mm-hmm. uh puts Beethoven 5 or Beethoven 9 on a concert in an effort to, you know, engage the conversation of disabled communities and mm-hmm. and music? Would would you be happy with that? Is that uh, is is that okay with you? <laughs> yeah. Um I mean, I think I would um, support that, but more in a wider conversation with disability music, or perhaps including more recent works by living disabled musicians or disability yeah. scholars. Actually, my friend, um, Adrian Antoine, who's a physically disabled musician in Boston, or we just did a whole program around that in the spring, like chamber works from um, Beethoven and myself. I think they had one, maybe they had a Bach piece, but trying to highlight disabled composers like past the present in a way. Um, So I think there's many creative ways to incorporate that. Um, I think my, I don't know about your perspective, but sometimes I feel like the longer I'm in this field, it's like the more you want to work within it to change it kind of, rather than just say, forget it. Cause I think it's, you know, I tried to just really produce the best and most um, convincing work possible to show the merit of it. Yeah, I, I I agree. There are many times when I want to proverbially <laughs> take my ball and go, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it's kind of like, go where? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Or like, you know, but because um, I think that's what's most rewarding for me sometimes. I don't know about you, like being at a venue that you feel like never had a sign language interpreter and there they mm. are performing, like very actively performing, not in the corner or something. Um, I think those are some of my most rewarding, yet challenging moments too. But. Yeah. And, and I often make the point that, you know, uh, sign language is not uh, universal. You know, we, we talk about American sign language. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the first type of sign language I actually learned in my life was uh, Japanese sign language. That's oh, when wow. I learned that it's not international. So, you know, I think no, there are always no. things to, uh, to to learn there. Well, yeah. how, how can how can folks um, learn more about you and, and uh, check out the album Perspective? Yeah, probably the best source is my website, um, mollyjoyce.com. Oh, great. Thanks. Well, I, I have uh, one more question I wanted to ask, you know, as you know, we've as we've talked about, you know, looping us back to June 2020, when your previous album came out, we spent a couple years as an industry talking about uh, racial politics, gender politics, and how we incorporate uh, those aspects into our programming and into our education. I wonder where you would advise people who have never engaged the topic of disability or, or disabled communities. What, what's a what's a good starting point? Is is there a book to read or a piece yeah. of music to listen to? How, how would you guide people in, in, a, in, a, in a good direction? Yeah, I'd say one of my favorite resources is Carolyn Lazard's um, Sorry, a promise and a practice, um, which if you just Google that, um, she wrote it as part of a uh, residency with Recess, a gallery in New York. And it's a really great just like intro accessibility guide. Um, I guess it's a little more visual arts focused, but she covers so, so much in it. And I think she was revising it or even she admits it, admits there's always things to improve and change in it. But I really love that as a great like, you know, intro guide to artistic accessibility and the importance of it. What is isolation for you? I think I go back very vividly to the hospital room. Oddly enough, isolation occurred when I was surrounded by people. Isolation is is knowing that people 
are willing to go to you, but not be with you. Not working at all days. That made me feel uncomfortable and very sad. Having to do so much alone and process so much alone, you know, not not having people around me who are equipped to understand what disability really is. It's just something that is always there. I mean, it's just, you know, I don't think it's ever going to go away. Track there titled Isolation from the album Perspective by Molly Joyce. So grateful uh, to have been able to dialogue with her and to uh, feature our conversation on this opus of Triloquy. There was something uh, from that track, Scott, Isolation, uh, that really stuck out at me. Uh, One of the collaborators spoke to Isolation, feeling like people being willing to come to you but not be with you. Well, what's your reaction to that? Pull on that thread a little bit. I think that a lot of people feel isolated or, or put a finer tip on it, lonely yeah. in the midst of a crowd. I mean, you can still be you know, within a group, but you can still be othered or not, uh, not included. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I identify with that feeling. Yeah, and of course, if we're going to you know, decenter the individual and talk about systems, we can talk about community engagement, coming to a community, but not being with the community. Uh, programming in a way that gets people on the stage, but they aren't really um, have given the opportunity to engage or have the impact or, you mm. know, it's, it's really, I, I love thinking about, you know, how proximity, even physical does not equate to togetherness. I, I, that That's something that uh, I'm, I'm going to, you know, think about that a little bit more but it's a concise way to put it i like that it's something to you know think about thanks to molly joyce and this really incredible album so thank you again uh for your work i'll have that linked in the uh description but we're going to go ahead and uh, get into the uh finale get into the triloquy for this week and we're going to talk about um some of the things that we burn so one of our neighbors here uh shout out to jess she suggested that for new year's eve one of the things that we do is we um have a fire you know a little bonfire in the fire pit out back to write things that we're not taking into 2022 and to ceremoniously uh, burn them in the fire. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But before we get there, you know, had to give a shout out to Shaka Khan through the fire, an American classic, and one that I found (laughs) arranged for a piano and performed here by Gabriella Miranda. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this piano arrangement of Shaka Khan's through the fire to talk about some of the things that did not make it (laughs) through the fire and is not making it into 2023. Here's a little bit of this. classical radio station on a car ride in the evening maybe i'm you know con uh, contemplative or just on my way to the grocery store or whatever i'm doing what a cool soundtrack you know we're listening to piano nothing's offensive 
beautiful music there, beautiful performance uh, by Gabriella Miranda and, uh, you know, Chaka Khan and an American treasure, you know. Do you think that people would recognize that? I think, uh, especially when you get to the, well, certainly when you get to the chorus, the opening is pretty similar uh, to the original there, okay. you know that that we heard. So you know that would be a way of really connecting to again mm. the 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 black auntie who <laughs> just happened to cut <laughs> on the classical oh, radio. Okay, so because I, yeah, I, I think I, I have aunties who would sure. who would who responded that you know the black auntie sure. who said okay listen to the classical radio station doing something <laughs> okay and, and then she tells somebody and tells somebody and now you have a few more potential listeners. Anyway, we're here in the uh, final movement. We're talking about fire. What did you write down? and burn in the fire? What is does not have a place in your 2023? First, I want to say that I burned four things, and three of them I'm not sharing. But the one that I will tell you that I'm, man, I'm going to make an effort. I just wrote no fear. Mm-hmm. Thinking about Nina Simone. Yeah. But that freedom is no fear. That's how she defined it, yeah. And so I'm trying to, uh, you know, we're going to see how long this lasts. Mm-hmm. But the things that I used to think about that I was afraid would happen if I make a certain move, afraid if I, what would happen if I didn't, instead I'm just going to start trying to follow the heart, trying, yeah. to fight, trying to lead with my chest and worry, worry about the fear when the scary thing actually shows up. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, uh, our Buddhist organ, shout out to Dell who received his uh, uh, Gohanzen today. Congrats, Dell. Um, among the many just sort of quotes and slogans, you know, that you'll see on the t-shirts of the Soka Gakkai organization, you know, uh, 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 never give up, for example, you know, and that mm. sort of thing. But one of the main ones is, uh, it's the heart that matters. I think we spend so much time trying to decide what the uh, logistics and how pragmatically change can happen through our current systems. And, you know, we spend so much time doing that, that we forget about the feeling. We forget about the connection. We yeah. forget about the heart. You I know? believe so, that. Uh, it, it takes courage to lead uh, with the heart. Um, so I'm rooting you on in, okay. in that this year. What's good for the goose is good for the gray duck. So what did you burn? So one of the, uh, <laughs> I've never heard that one before. but <laughs> It's a Minnesota thing, you know, duck, okay. duck, gray duck, uh, goose, Among yeah, So there are things that I burned that I won't share either, but one of the things that I wrote down on a card and burned <laughs> was colonial thought. I wrote down those two words, colonial thought. Thought. And it all came tumbling down <laughs> right after you threw it in. And what do I mean by that? Something that it's getting, and I, I maybe I brushed up against this in the trilogy last week, but you know, work has been very challenging for me. And I think it's more than the idea of the work being challenging because the work is what I've dedicated my life to, you know. It's the Western or American just construct of job that I'm growing more and more challenged by. You know, the wake up and start work this time. And, oh, there's an expectation that at, you know, this time you're in front of your computer or that, you know, you'll take a meeting at this time. I'm not saying it should be all willy nilly, but I can't help but to imagine what it would look like to normalize a, and let me be radical, according to some of y'all anyway, a noon start day. Because if you wake up at 6 a.m., 
you somehow still going to be up at midnight. So why not start that day, that work day at noon, you know, work till six, seven, eight o'clock. You have the rest of your evening. You know, even if you stay up a little bit late, you're going to get up early enough to have a morning and do what you got to do. And, you know, now when it's time for work at noon the next day, you're ready. You know, you've you've done a, a number of things. You know, all, all of that for me, just as one example of how I want to move away uh, from just normalizing certain things that I feel like we can shift or or change. I feel like it's very colonial to think about uh, the job as something that is unmoving, that can't change. Norms are are this way. That's that's a way that many of many of us are taught to be uh, uh, to to engage. And I think. It's just time to change that. Something that we were talking about earlier this evening when we talk about, you know, shifts away from colonial thought, especially as it relates to employment. Is it a matter of a new generation, um, you know, coming in and taking yeah. the lead? Or can it be a matter of the heart for decades now that, you know, you go to school, you go to college or learn a trade and you get a job and you work every day. And the things that you have in your life are a testament to how hard you've worked. And if you haven't worked hard, that means you're a bad person or you don't deserve this or, you know, it, yep. and, and of course that isn't what's always blatantly said, but that's really what we're saying. You know, your yeah. worth as a human being is connected to how hard you work what you produce that is colonial thinking and it's becoming more and more uh problematic for me to just adhere to that so sure you know my question to you is do you think shifting away from that approach can hearts be changed or do we just have to wait for the generation to change i've said it a number of times that i think your generation and younger has the best shot at it because my generation and up we've already been programmed yeah for to to produce my, in my house it was a little bit different because work was supposed to be something you're proud of yeah that at the end of the day you can say i i put in good effort and i can sign my name to this and be and be pleased with it but earlier today i was listening to an interview that i can't remember the gentleman's name but he was saying having an 18 year old kid get done with high school, go right into college, pick a career, and then go and start working is crazy. Yeah. Who knows what I would have picked if if I could have waited a few years rather than feeling the pressure of going into college and picking a major right away. Especially and, when you talk about the arts, because the right, decision is made far right. before college. You know, it's sure. made when you're 10 years old and decide to pick up this instrument, you know? Sure. And for so, many of us anyway. Right. But um, I think that you're already starting to see some of the change, what with the, the 24-hour nature of the world that we live in mm -hmm. now. The virtual have, nature of and the world. You have second shifters and third shifters, right? Um, the, the clock that you're talking about, I have. Mm -hmm. I start to work at about two in the afternoon, and it's great. Yeah. And sometimes, if I don't want to work at two in the afternoon, if I want to nap, it's cool. I can stay up late and work past midnight. I don't mind. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I, I'm naming, you, you know, again, work is an example of one of the colonial things I want to sort of uh, critique. Again, not work, but job, because I think it's definitely important to, to make that delineation. Right. Um, but, but, but that's my hope. I'm, I'm hoping that 
what I have left in 2022 is just the last inklings of sacrifices and compromises I make toward decolonization. That isn't to say that, you know, I will never say a good thing about a Beethoven symphony or even, you know, program it when I do different uh, radio things or that you'll never hear the tradition here on Triloquy. But I think it's just the thought process that I have thrown away thinking of something and this is the way to do it because this is how it's done. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm that that's that's over, and I hope that more of us can find ways to incorporate that into our lives. Of course, you know, as we work to normalize here on the Trilogy Podcast, the way that we approach the phrase classical music and everything that surrounds it. But what about every you know a- aspect of our life? I think it's time for us to really evolve, to really lead with the heart. I think this will uh, this could potentially result in you know better mental health. For individuals, sure. you know, we've seen a rise to people finally talking about their mental health, you know, because of the way we've been traumatized by jobs and these colonial systems, you know. So now that we're seeing that, let's work toward building an ecosystem where more of us can have time to rest, have time to pace the floors and just think, you know, like we have to do sometimes. Mm. Have time to sleep a little later if we're not morning people and work a little later if we're night owls or, or whatever. We can create that world, but we have to create that world. And I'm, I'm going to try it for, for this year. I want to shout out, you know, just, j- just as, a, as a final closer, for real, <laughs> um, <laughs> at, at, the, uh, at, at, uh, at the Buddhist Center, uh, this month, the SGI Center, when we were doing uh, New Year's Gongyo, one of the speakers said, do something this year that is unprecedented for you. Mm. Isn't that exciting that this year you could create something for yourself? You could do something that for you is absolutely unprecedented. That's my hopes for 2023, not only for myself, not only for each and every one of you, but the industry of classical music and the world that we live in. Happy New Year, everyone. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 